presented by Dirty Rascals. In this series, we give writers a chance to air their dirty laundry, otherwise known as their bottom of the draw plates. As always, I'm with my co-host, Mr. Daniel Spicer. Hiya. And our guest this week is Mr. Sam Steiner. Sam, how you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thanks, pal. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for coming, man. It's been a pleasure. It's good to see you. Yeah, I miss you, man. You too, man. It's been a while. We should hang out and record it more. We should should (laughs) just hang out more. We don't say record it every time. Um, (laughs) But yeah, so um, Sam, yeah. Do you want to start off, we always ask our guests just to start off with, to tell us a little bit about yourself as a writer. Um, so just maybe how you started writing and yeah, a bit about that. Um, I started off uh, by writing songs when I was a teenager, uh, mostly awful, entirely awful, um, but enjoyed doing that and then started making uh, some short films with friends from school and then I went to uni and started and was tried to act in plays but didn't didn't very didn't get cast really so wanted to be involved so I started writing plays and then kept doing it and so do you want to tell us a little bit about the play that you've um submitted for us then like what uh, maybe like a synopsis and also like where it came from um yeah I haven't actually I I wrote it quite a while ago now it must be like two or three years old and I haven't looked at it in a couple of years, so I can't remember it that well, but I'm gonna I'm gonna try. Uh, so it's basically about a guy whose father is ill, and he walks home from the hospital um, along the motorway, and he has a, a particular kind of it, he sees a particular sight and has a particular experience that uh, reflects on um, yeah his current emotional turmoil. Um, in terms of why it was written, I was I wrote it originally because I had to write a five minute monologue for something. Oh no, maybe it was shorter than that. Maybe it was like three minutes or something. And I started writing this and it ended up being what it is, which is about 12, 15 minutes. Um which is which was obviously way too long. Um and uh so I I put this to a side and wrote a different thing for the short one because I, I don't I didn't think it could be cut down um and then I tried to I tried to get this on a few places just a few like short play nights in London and no one really wanted it um so it, it never got done I d- apart from one time I was really lucky and got invited to go to this um, playwriting workshop week in Barcelona um, that Simon Stevens ran and there was an open mic thing at one point during that week uh, at the Sala Beckett Theatre in in uh, in Barcelona which is a really cool theatre and I so I performed this monologue at that thing so I've never heard it I've only done it and only done it to a group of people, most of whom did not understand a word of it. No, nah, man, no, no, no. It's like sick. That's really okay. interesting as well. Like, I think it's always really interesting when um, when you haven't heard it done by somebody else. Um, yeah. Do, do you think that uh, you have a specific sense of, of like how it should be performed or like how you hear it for yourself? Or not? Yeah, I think I, I think 
I wrote it at a time when I was writing quite a lot of stuff in, I think too much stuff in my own voice and my own, like how I phrase things and how I stutter and kind of talk quite downbeat often and quite casually. So I wrote it for that kind of style. Um, and so I imagine it in that kind of delivery, I guess. Um, but yeah, I'd be interested to see how it's turned out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Three years later. Nice. With someone else. Um, shall we go for clip number one, Mr. D? So I'm walking down the grassy bit at the side of the, yeah, and the cars are like screaming past me. The first time I did it, I was shaking, like just from being so close to that speed, you know? But now it doesn't really affect me anymore. Just makes my mind slow down somehow and almost go a bit blank. I'm not feeling great. I've got a cold and I've completely lost my voice and the tears kind of dried on my face so it felt all flaky from the salt. Yeah, so I guess question number one is yeah. like, I mean, I've been by A roads before in my life, just right. on my feet, but I don't think I ever walked down a motorway. Yeah. Where'd that come from? Um, I, I, I have walked down a motorway before. Uh, I, I did some hitchhiking when I was, uh, when I was like 20 and, um, I did walk down a motorway and it was a weird experience. And I was just, I, I think like it just came from driving past motorways a lot and going, it's weird that there's this kind of little thing that no one talks about and that, you know, we all know and we all drive past and it's all like, it just felt like the kind of like rotten, like, like, you know, no one goes there and no, and it, and no one really tends the grass or whatever. It's not meant to look good. Um, so I was just kind of like, that's a weird space. Like a transport <laughs> conspiracy theory. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Those <laughs> bastards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No one talks about it, guys. But it's there. <laughs> no, but it was just yeah. like, <laughs> wake up, everyone. <laughs> no, but like, it's it's just interesting that kind of like area of deadland. Yeah. Um, Should we do another clip? And there are two planes in the sky heading towards each other. I thought they looked like toys. I got like a flashback to when I was a kid. Dad got me a mobile with planes on, and I think like a tiny teddy bear. Yeah, a teddy bear. Like there were two planes, a teddy bear wearing like a blue baseball cap, and then a photo of the three of us. So uh, obviously, um, Karen's brought a more tender energy there to what is. It is more very of a, tender, isn't it? Yeah, it's very nice. Well, it is a tender moment in the script. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, I guess like the the whole image um, that that the characters remember in there, um, like of the mobile it, it, it's it's almost like i guess i guess what i'm saying is like we expect british writers to have like quite a lot of like cynicism about them and this is obviously an aspect where you you're you're really not doing that yeah yeah, yeah. is that something that like is was a choice yeah and or, or is it just something that happens not deliberately but that you do notice in a lot of your writing or what that's interesting. Um, I think with where, I mean, at this point in the, in the short play, he's, you know, he's not, he's being, he's romanticizing his childhood because his dad's life is on the line. So I think in, at this point he's not being cynical because there's no, 
there's no reason to be in a sense like he wants to he wants to think about the good times and think a lot of the play is about coming to terms with I mean I think a lot of the plays about coming to terms with death but through that it uses those kind of memories as a lens for him to do so I think um I think I mean I definitely try not to be cynical in my writing I definitely believe that that is not a very generous or thing to do to be a cynical writer um because you're asking people to come and to take time out of their day to come and see what you what you're doing and i think you have to you have to approach that with a, a level of generosity and with a level of i don't want to say sincerity because i think irony is really important in writing in general in my writing but I de- I, ne- I never want someone to come out of a play and go, oh, that was that was cynical. Yeah, so I, I definitely want to avoid that, but without ever being too romanticized or too um, naive as well. I think there's something. It's it, it, I find that in a play I'm doing at the moment where it's a play that's really about optimism, and I'm having to really tread a fine line between portraying optimism as a as a good thing that I believe in and going, okay, but you actually still have to address the problems in the world and to 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 eradicate them and be overly optimistic or naive is is violent in its own way. Um yeah. Cool. So uh let's have another clip then. The planes are making their way across the sky, which is clear and blue by the way. They're leaving those snail trails behind them and they're going at right angles. They're perpendicular to each other. It looks like... It looks like they're just going to miss each other. Like one is just going to get past the other in time. I've stopped now, right in the middle of the bit, you know. And I'm just watching this fucking epic bit of action that's taking place right in front of me. Like miles away, obviously, but also right in front of me. None of the cars seem to notice. They keep speeding by, and I'm fucking shaking again. I'm fucking like, you know, my body is fucking giving it something. I'm, yeah, I'm excited. So at this point, um, there's a there's what seems to be a, a plane crash is going to happen, um, and obviously Karen's given it some there as well to show how excited he is. Yeah. Um, I guess like it's a maybe on the face of it, it might seem like an unusual emotion to have when you're about to see like a huge disaster. Like totally. where do you feel like that excitement comes from? Um, I think uh, for the character, like the characters basically spent the last, you know, I'm not entirely sure how long I knew when I wrote it, but like the last long, long period of time, weeks, months in a hospital sitting by his dad. And I think anything in that situation is something different. And I think there is um, a level of, and I think he knows that he shouldn't be excited. Um, I think the character knows that, like, that's a horrible event. But, you know, we've been brought up on action movies and any action at all is kind of exciting. So I think that moment is is a kind of confession to the audience in a way. But it's also about him breaking out of this really, like, bleak and and kind of drowning experience that he's had for the last certain period of time. <laughs> 
Yeah. It's, it's interesting because I always saw it as like this sort of like Michael Bay moment yeah, where yeah. it's like a really expensive explosion happens between these two plates. It's totally, yeah. I, yeah. I think it definitely is a kind of Michael Bay moment. Yeah. And I think he thinks it's that as well. Partly because the image of two planes crashing into each other mid uh, in like an otherwise empty blue sky, which is how he describes it, is pre- preposterous, really. Like it's, it's slightly, uh, it's a fantastical image. And... I think that I think the Michael Bayness of it is is intended and and plays obviously when you get to the end of the when you kind of it twists and turns later on, you know that that's not necessarily what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. To pull out on that, and um, this might be something that is a little bit more tangential, but um, in our last conversation, we spoke quite a lot about that process of coming to consciousness of like the techniques or of the um the tools that you have at the disposal as a writer and we were talking a bit about the way in which um that can be obviously it can allow you to write better but also it can be quite um like limiting and that actually sometimes people feel that when they go back to their old writing that there's a freedom in it that they perceive that they feel they don't have at the moment yeah how how do you feel about that i think it's really hard i think it's a really hard mix um, I, in the last couple of years, basically since I wrote, essentially since I did that week in Barcelona, actually, I've kind of tried to double down on, on craft stuff and go, all right, I'm going to work really hard and teach myself what plays are and how they work and, and really try and educate myself and consume loads of material so that I, yeah, so that I can be more than just, so that I can do things more in a more sophisticated way than perhaps I did before and perhaps I did when I was writing this, which was very much kind of like shooting from the hip, do you know what I mean? And so, but saying that, I think sometimes it's kind of paralysing because sometimes you've got all this kind of theory in your head and you need to let yourself just go as well. So what I what I found I tend to do is write a first draft pretty much on instinct I'll usually kind of fill up the tank with loads of like ideas about it maybe a brief plan like really basic plan and loads of yeah character ideas and moments that could happen I'll kind of bash out that first draft as quickly as possible and then on a second draft is where I kind of try and push through the craft elements so like the more you know thinking more about conflict and uh, and events and when stuff happens and when stuff when it's effective for stuff to happen um yeah cool um let's move on to the next one then i lower my face to the to the to one of the windows um but i can't see anything it's smoky inside and i can't see so and i am scared i am but i'm also something else i move around it i get to the hole the like cross point with the other plane and I squeeze myself round it so I'm inside. I'm inside the smaller plane. I look up and I bat the smoke away from my face and at first it looks like all the seats are empty, like it was just an empty plane flying with nobody in it. Maybe there was a scheduling cock up and it needed to be at a different airport or something. But then I step forward and I look in one of the seats and sitting there in the seats that's... um. There's um there's a teddy bear.
there's a teddy bear, yeah, and it's it's wearing uh, a um, a blue cap. It's wearing a blue cap. In the seat next to it, there's a dog, not a real dog, a stuffed dog, like a stuffed dog that's like red and got a goofy smile on its face. Looks a bit like Clifford from the from the TV show. And then next to that, there's one of those cuddly snakes you used to get at IKEA. I walk through the plane and um, every seat has got a stuffed animal on it, like a cuddly one. Not any weird taxidermy thing, they're all kids' stuffed toys. Cool, so yeah, we were talking earlier a bit about um, the way that you're like interweaving these images and like this is now a very specific image um, where you've kind of abstracted and like you were talking about refracting like those images through like you've, you've taken these childhood toys and you've put them in this this destructive like plain environment each kind of eerily on each seat like yeah do you want to talk about where that image came from or like how that kind of i just thought it was a pretty cool image yeah i thought um yeah i was just interested in it as an image and yeah and like uh, you know the whole thing's about you know coming to terms with your dad passing away and so much of that is 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 reconciling your kind of beautified, beatified childhood images with death and destruction and going both of those things I now tie to this person and to my memory of this person and I have to reconcile those two different forms of images and two different emotional st states um, and I think that's a really hard thing to do and I think that's... Um, uh, yeah, and so I, I mean that's what the piece is about, and so I think that that image came out of that. But also, I was like, that's kind of a really cool image in my head. Um, and I think it does. I think it, for me, it feels like for me it achieves that because it feels, it does feel like eerie and at the same time like quite comforting as an image. And I think that's what makes it quite attractive. And I think that um, there is potentially like a nonsensicality or an absurdity to it, which also yeah. feels like what you're trying to get at with like the, the reality, but simultaneously the absurdity of having those two things like sit next to each other. Yeah. Um, of like mortality and like the yeah. childhood innocence. Yeah, I think so. Hopefully. I don't know, we'll see. No, yeah, I think it's, I think yeah. it's really nice. Well, thanks man. So, let's uh, move on to a new clip. So, I go towards it and I stand before him and it's dad. It's my dad, obviously. That feels like a generous impulse. And it feels like to me that this obviously, even though it, even though there's a sense in which it, it is a repudiation of like having to come to terms with this yeah, thing, yeah. it's also an invitation. And it's mm. also, it's a, it's a sense in which the audience are asked to come into relationship to this fact. And, yeah. asked to, and I think that there's a really lovely way in which this piece, and I think there's something that's trivial writing in general, that like, the audience are invited in and and kind of made to in the, the most generous way possible come into relation with the thing that the characters like having to orient themselves around yeah and um that for me ultimately seems like it's rooted in a generosity from you as a writer yeah i i mean i hope so i hope so i think they're the shows that i, that I like most so i hope that that's um that that's true. So I'm glad that that's how you feel. Thanks, Fab. That's I'm right. really glad. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. I, I, like, I don't know, maybe this is more just kind of babble or we're repeating stuff, but I feel like there's something about dramatic irony that can be really difficult to 
uh, hit the sweet spot with. Yeah. Like, there's a sense in which, like, it can feel really flat if it's, like, yeah. too obviously, obviously given. Um, but this is one of those moments where it feels like the type of dramatic irony you identify in your own life when you feel like real events. Yeah. You felt like, I knew that was going to happen, and it happened anyway, yeah. and it's shit. Duh. Why didn't I, like, yeah, yeah, avoid yeah. that happening? It feels like one of those moments. Yeah, I think that's exactly the kind of thing it is. I don't think it's... Hopefully it's not... I totally know what you mean about dramatic irony feeling a bit flat because it can feel a bit stagey in a way, right? And I think this is definitely that kind of thing, that that exact moment of going, I should have I should have got this before I have done. I'm not. I should have been less stupid than I have been. Um, yeah. Bless. All right. Uh, let's do another clip. But actually, that's not the first thing I notice. The first thing I notice is that there's no tube coming out of his nose. That's the first thing. And I try and remember the last time I saw him like that, and I can't. Like, I think even in that memory, my memory slash imagination thing of him with the mobile, he still got a tube up his nose. Even though that makes no sense chronologically. The second thing I notice is that he's got this kind of fucking smile on his face. Like it's a, like he used to have whenever Man United scored a goal. Like a victorious smile. Like it won. Then I noticed that he's dead. Third. I think there's a lot going on there. Um, yeah. To start with, I think uh, I want to talk about how the memories get um, confused, uh, especially like the the image of the tube still being up the nose, even yeah, though chronologically yeah. that shouldn't be there. Yeah. Um, without going into, like, boring personal detail, sure. I definitely have that uh, difficulty with memories that I have being kind of, like, rewritten yeah. with later memories yeah. and struggling to hold on to that thing. Without inviting you to go into, like, too much personal yeah. detail, is that something that you hit on personally? Or, like, how did you come yeah. across that? Because that's, like, so resonant. Yeah, totally. It's just so... That's something that I'm kind of fascinated in and... Scared by to an extent, but just kind of intrigued by, I think, like, I, my memories are such a subjective, ever-changing version of, of my life or whatever, of things that actually happened. And I am interested in that because I don't think I've seen that explored that much. But, like, yeah, it's weird. Like, when I think of, like, stories that happened to me when I'm, when I was... 14 or something with my friends I still imagine those friends like I know them now do you know what I mean like it's like five 25 year old men just like you know drinking in a park or whatever um and so I think that kind of weird juxtaposition of your modern information with reflection on the past is weird and just something that happens and that we don't talk about enough so yeah it's, I think it's just interesting it's a little kind of fascination of mine I guess all right, so um, we're going to listen to the next clip and pick up on some of the stuff more to do with like that father and son relationship. Now, in my head, the scream that I let out then sounded a bit like a scream out of Braveheart. Like, ah! You know, like a war cry, like, ah! 
had a cold and I'd lost my voice. So it was probably more of a whimper or like a whine. Alright. So like the way Curran does it obviously yeah. has like a lot of breaking in it, that scream. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's talking a lot about like masculinity and he really like bears a very masculine side of himself there. Um so I guess like looking back at like the obviously where he's encountering this in the relationship with his dad, like do you do you feel like a connection in, in that in that character to like that type of masculinity or, or like where where does that sit with him like yeah i guess it's weird and i i completely know what you mean it's it's definitely about a kind of particular kind of masculinity but i never thought about that when writing it it was always you know i was writing it in a flow and it was always just what i thought the character would do then um and so in terms of when I was actually writing it, it wasn't a, due to any kind of preconceived ideas or wanting to explore an issue of masculinity. It was literally just following the character's story and seeing where that ended up. Um, looking back on it now and trying to evaluate it, um, uh, which is always a weird thing to do, it does feel, it does, I, I mean, I definitely relate to that kind of, um, that kind of uh, feeling of wanting to, uh, to tackle things in a really, in a very uh, stereotypically masculine way, particularly when it's um, complicated emotions like like grief, you uh, you don't know how you're, you know, there's no real rule book for how you're supposed to supposed to handle those things, and um, and so I think we we um, go back to stuff that we've seen in movies or stuff that we've kind of socially absorbed as uh, as a language to express those complicated feelings um that is me analyzing my own script rather than talking from a writing point of view but i guess that's i guess if i try and an analyze my own mindset when writing it that's probably what i was trying to do um also i just thought it was kind of f f funny and and quite british that uh someone trying to scream in an anguish and then having a cold and not being able to do so. Um, it felt relatable. Yeah. When you did it in Barcelona, did you scream? I did, yeah. And actually, that was the best bit because um, it, it was actually... People laughed as well. So they got the humour of it, even though they couldn't understand what I was saying. <laughs> um, and so... Yeah, um, it was definitely the most effective bit, and it is my favourite bit, I think, of the of the um, of the play. It's the bit that I've always tried to shoehorn into other things that I've written since that have a chance of going on, and it hasn't fit. So I've always ended up cutting it. But yeah, I, I like it. I think to me, the thing that always really excites me about that bit, um, like even literally when we were recording it, obviously because of the way that recording and levels works, yeah. it is a very shocking. Moment, shift yeah. for the rest from the rest of the piece and i think that because it's quite mumbly like before then, exactly like, yeah. right and like there's this uh we don't we really don't expect it like uh, we don't expect something as violent or as um embodied and energized from the person who's like been telling us this story despite the kind of action in the story they've obviously been quite relaxed about it at this point and i think that 
just throwing that into a space, especially in this context of just a person telling a story to a group of people, it it feels like, again, we're really forced in to kind of collide with what the character is engaging with. And like, this is like a very like emotional yeah. release moment that is yeah. kind of feels like the play needs because it's about this frustration and inability. And it's just like, it's so beautiful that you let it happen because I could so easily see how you could say, I let out a scream and then don't do it. And I think it's really interesting and important that they you tell the person to do that, yeah. to make this to scream. Yeah, I think it's also something that works. I think in theatre, it works quite well when you admit that things didn't happen as you're presenting them because theater is 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 uh fundamentally metaphorical and funda- fundamentally representative in that you know everyone no one's acknowledging no one thinks that this is real because everyone knows that it's happening in a space and there are loads of weird people that they don't know sitting next to them and that we've paid for this weird evening and so everyone knows it's not like a film which is like like time travel right films like looking into a different world Theatre is always confronting you with the fact that it's not actually happening. And so it's quite, I quite like moments in plays where they admit that that's probably not what happened. But, um, and so I think I like that, the fact that he screams and then goes, but it probably didn't happen like that. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, Should we have a listen to the final clip then? And I tried to tell him about the cot and I couldn't really express... He's, um, and he cried, Jack, and he shouted at me, and, but he eventually agreed. The doctors in Switzerland were so great. They, I mean, they're sensitive and kind, and both to him and to me and Jack. One of the nurses told me that most of what they do is really about taking care of the people that come with. We watched Transformers Age of Extinction together just before he went in. It's pretty f- It's pretty hard to find the poignancy in that film. We just thought he might like to go to the cinema. I feel so guilty sometimes I can't breathe. It stops me performing really simple tasks like addition. I can't add two numbers together and and stuff sometimes like for bills, or tax returns, or whatever. I miss him. Yeah. Yeah, I miss him. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, he does it so well. He does it really, really well. Um, uh yeah, I, I, I don't know if I've got any more thoughts than that. You really feel like the weight the weight of it on in there. I think there are some bits of writing in there that are better than the others. I think the the Switzerland drop feels it just feels a bit heavy. Like yeah, I get you. I, it feels slightly like it almost becomes an issue play at that point. And it I I I didn't I I don't think I ever really liked it, but I always knew that it was necessary in some way. But I think I it, it feels a bit heavy. Mm. Um, I do. Yeah. I think one thing that I I I think I would have changed just about the performance, and this is nitpicky because I do think he sounds like he's done an absolutely like amazing job and found things in it that I that I didn't know were there and stuff. Um, but for me, that last line is a kind of 
like victory in a way. Like mm-hmm. it's it's him going. That's that's it. It's I'm missing. Yeah. It's like I. That's what I'm been trying to say. Mm-hmm. And so it's less about wallowing and more about going. Yeah. That's it. And that's okay. That's just how I feel. Um, and so I would I would kind of. Uh, if we, yeah, if if we we're gonna do it at any point, if Karen was gonna do it yeah, again, yeah, yeah. which I'd love, um, uh, we should let's put it on. Um, let's not actually do that. But <laughs> he, he could do it, um, uh, and um, I'd be like, let's just feel that kind of like you've achieved something at the end a little bit. I think. Do you know that's really interesting as well? Because I was gonna say I love the way that it ends because it feels like like I love, for example, the the note about the struggling to add up because it feels like this not for. It feels like it's not fulfilled in the sense that we haven't put a, what we talk about sometimes with ourselves is the idea of like putting a button at the end of it. It's like, you know, we've, yeah. we've put a button on it. It doesn't feel like that. Um, and I think that what you've just said exactly explains that because it's the idea that like for, for the person speaking, they have reached the conclusion for themselves and therefore yeah. the, there's no need to, to carry on. And I think that's how it, it's a really beautiful ending in that sense. And it feels really honest. Um, and it takes me back to something that I talk about a lot when I'm working with people on monologues as well, which is that thing of like um, really thinking about that need to speak. And I think that what this really articulates is when there is no more need to speak, then that can really end it. And that's a really beautiful ending, which I don't really think I can, yeah, that I've come across in a a lot of writing. It feels like quite a mature thing actually to just say that like, that's actually, I'm I'm happy with that as that's it. That is the victory. And I don't know. Yeah, I guess I think... I think that's a really good way of putting it, the need the need to speak ending. And I think if if I was to rewrite it and if I was to write another monologue at any point, I'd I'd be constantly asking myself, why is this guy why is he need to, why is this person uh do it, saying this? Why is they need to speak? Whereas I don't think I was maybe it was there subconsciously, but I was never like questioning myself. And maybe it would have been tighter as a script if I had been. But do you think that, that- is in order for that to be the case you as the writer need to have like that sense of like knowing the ins and outs and like what's in their pocket and that kind of thing or can that be something that is about an image which is particularly rich so for example someone walking across the stage pushing a pram or whatever, like where it's like the image tells you a whole lot of things yeah. but actually you haven't necessarily made like yeah of i totally believe that i don't think i think those exercises are useful if you're a bit lost i don't think you need to know like some people will be like oh you need to know what brand of toothbrush toothpaste they use and i don't buy that i think i like when i write characters and it's interesting we've talked mainly about characters but like i don't think all theater has to have characters in by any means but um uh when i write a character i feel like i've got their kind of like feeling do you know what i mean like i I aim to kind of know what they just what they feel like and um and sometimes it's useful if you're not quite sh- sure of them or if you feel like you've lost them a little bit to do those exercises, to know what's in their pocket and, and all of that stuff. But most of the time it's just, it's it's more, um, it's more instinctual, I guess, yeah. And yeah, I think, I mean, imagistically you can do so much more than words. Like if you can show, not tell in any way. And uh, you can show with words as well, but that's always the route I want to take. I never want another character telling you how a character is how how someone is and for that to be correct instinctively i agree with you that like not all 
theatre needs to have characters. Yeah. But um, depending on whether anyone listens, uh, they might kind of hear that comment yeah. um, and kind of find it a little jarring or peculiar. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to just kind of like, if you could, like unpack kind of what theatre without characters has as, as, its, as its possibility? Um, I guess I've read a lot of really good plays that don't have characters in, like uh, Face to the Wall, Martin Crimp stuff, like Face to the Wall, Attempts on Her Life, um, Carol Churchill's play, Love and Information, just plays that work on kind of energy and, uh, and theme, but not in too intellectual a way. They kind of just work on... They're propelled by energy, I guess. And uh, they still, they often tell story, tell a story or tell a series of stories, but in a way that um, that doesn't necessarily include someone on stage pretending to be someone else. That's a really nice provocation. I like that. Yeah. Um, one thing that I want to tangentially bring up as well, because yeah. I mentioned it a few times, um, is can you talk to us a bit about the relationship that you have to read in plays and what that means because we've yeah we've kind of spoken about it a bit and I think yeah. I know that as you've been talking about but I just know you as a person that reading plays is an important part of what you do yeah um, but what relationship does that have to like seeing a work performed and like sure you know? I think it's I think it's massive I think and sometimes I forget how massive it is and then I, I go back and try and dis- it, it discipline myself into reading more plays when I when I first did Lemons um, I the director sent me like four or five plays to read. And it was from reading those plays that I was then able to write Lemons, I think. Um, Before then, I think I was writing much more kind of typical, um, uncreative plays, I think. Um, And now, basically what happened is I did one of the Royal Court writing groups with Ali McDowell, um, who's an amazing playwright. And he is the most voracious reader I've, I know I've ever met probably and he just impressed upon me the importance of reading plays and reading widely and that and I then I started doing that more I always read a lot of plays but um like ever since I kind of became a playwright if that I mean that's a weird word and yeah horrible phrase but like I've, I've read a lot of plays but I doubled my effort to kind of find stuff and read diversely and uh, and read stuff that I don't, wouldn't have thought that I would enjoy and try and figure out why some people do. Because um, uh, I think it's... I just think it's the only way to learn. Um, and, yeah, I think it's the only way to learn, really. Um and it's it's like what I was saying earlier about kind of doubling down on on craft stuff is that like I want to get better at this thing, and the only thing I'm gonna the only ways that I'm gonna do that is by reading loads and writing loads, and so I'm yeah I'm trying to make a concerted effort to do that as much as possible. It's obviously hard, but I, yeah, I, it's important to me. I think. Um, I want to roll back to one thing you said about the character in that uh, there's so much economy like you know yeah. where that character's coming from despite only like a very short bit of interaction um maybe i'm just like throwing a maelstrom of ideas i don't really know what this thought is but 
when we talk about British attitudes to emotion and and, and all sorts of stuff, it, there is a lot of like stereotypical like reservations. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, which we don't associate with American yeah. life. Yeah, yeah. That being said, I think that. Um, the economy you're talking about comes through in the best like American TV pilots where in the first like five minutes like you, you get know. exactly what where Walter White is coming from or yeah, I mean yeah, like yeah. There are, Don Draper yeah, yeah exactly yeah, like yeah, you yeah, get totally. it as soon as you see it not to just talk about all these like big male characters that all the no uh, yeah but like in other shows as well transparent definitely like, yeah. definitely like y- y- girls y- yeah exactly um like Broad City, you get their relationship like yeah, in the totally, first five minutes. Totally. You know? Atlanta, yeah, sorry. I, we could have a TV geek out, but like, yeah. Anyway. American TV is good, what can you it's say? It's good, yeah. Um, I guess what I'm saying is, um, despite obvious examples to the contrary, we do have this image of like Britain not talking about their feelings and America talking about their feelings. Yeah. But obviously all those American films that we've grown up with and American TV has had a huge influence on you. Do you, do you feel like more connected to the American mindset of emotion than the like stereotype of Britishness? Or do you think there's a real thing in the middle that is maybe not captured by either? Yeah, it's interesting. My, so my dad's Canadian as well. So I've, I feel like I've grown up with a, uh, transatlantic, um, uh, point of view in some ways um so i think there's i think with that obviously those are the stereotypes and and obviously it's infinitely more complicated than those stereotypes and stuff but um i think i my position as a writer and my position as a person are different i don't i think as a person i'm i don't think i'm very good at talking about my feelings i think i probably am quite stiff upper lipped um but as a writer, I think, and I think a lot of actually, a lot of my plays are about um, about stripping those things away from people and and people's struggle to be to be honest with each other. I think is what I write about a lot and what I come back to a lot. Um, uh, whether that is British or American, I'm not sure. I know that those the American like particularly American TV and American indie movies have had a massive, been like my biggest, my the biggest thing that got me into writing probably. Um, but I don't know if I could pinpoint exactly where that influence, uh, how that influence affects this particular issue. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. I've kind no, of dodged man. that question. No, that's no, good. It's, it's the truth is the truth, isn't it? Mm. I think it's something that's true of both of us as well, actually, that like both of us write in a way that's about um, trying to... I think sometimes, for me at least personally, there's like a misguided desire for authenticity, which I think can sometimes yeah. lead me astray, but there's definitely that drive to strip away like social mask or to strip towards what something. What do you mean by authenticity in this in I this think case? so like when I'm thinking about misguided, I think there's like, there are times in shows where I structure it such that like there's like the fake part and then like the real part. And I think that that oh, right, can sometimes okay. be a bit like, I don't know how I feel about that now. So. Um, but I think I recognize that drive in myself and I recognize how in performance, I've been speaking about this quite a lot of people recently, like I feel more as a performer and as like a, as someone, as a maker in that moment as well, like that I am able to actually authentically interact with an audience uh, because of the, like the artificiality of the situation, which is this weird duplicity. And like, I don't know to what extent that speaks to like a wider. Well, I think, I I think that's true 
I think generally people feel, or I don't know, I feel more able to express um, my real opinions in and my true insecurities and uh, things that I wouldn't want to express normally in a, like a podcast kind of environment or in a in an in in you know if you're on stage in front of a hundred people than I would if you're having an intimate conversation with one person um, and I think that's a weird thing that that uh, that an audience does or maybe maybe it's maybe it's a, maybe it's a generosity thing and maybe you're just like I want to make this worth these people's time and if I'm not honest then I'm not making it worth these people's time um maybe it's just the fact that you know that you're doing that as part of a show and so they judge you on the show rather than on your insecurities or those things that you might not normally say so I yeah it's interesting the way artificiality kind of frees us in some ways cool should we ask the final question right, yeah so the final question is so we kind of hinted at the start do you think, are you going to hone it or are you going to disown it? This is like, oh wow, this is like proper desert island disc. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I, I don't think I'm, I don't, I, I don't think I'm going to do it either. Can I, can I pick that? <laughs> so is it? I don't think I'll go back to it. Okay. Because I don't think it's, so you're just like an argent capitalist that's going to hold on to your property without <laughs> no, doing it. All right, okay, I'll disown it. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> oh no, I'm joking. no, 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 go um, on, go on. Do no, your middle okay. ground. Do your um, liminal space. Your so I don't, zone. Um, I don't, I can't, it's not that I can't stand the, the sight of it or the, the sound of it or whatever. I, I, I really enjoyed listening to it back and it was interesting. Um, uh, I, I wouldn't put it on now. I don't think I definitely wouldn't like put it on and want everyone in the world to see it. I don't know if I've ever felt that in a battle play to be fair, but like, I don't think I definitely wouldn't kind of go back to it, make, hone it till it's perfect and, uh, and get it on because I don't think, I don't think I care about it enough to be honest, but saying that I don't hate it by any means. And I think, I, I think it's quite good to look at your own past. I know some writers that every, after they've written something, they discard it and they hate it. And, and some of my favorite writers do that about plays I love. And I don't feel that way. Even if I think I do the things differently, I know that I had to go through that play to get to where I am now. And so I'm glad that I wrote that thing two years ago, um, even if it's messy and self-indulgent and long, um, because those... I eventually, whether I learned from that specifically or from other things, it was a yeah stepping stone on that on that path. Not that I've now arrived at, <laughs> uh, at perfection, but uh, hopefully we'll hit a load of other stepping stones along the way. All right. Well, that was a very articulate answer um, and justifies you breaking down our taxonomy and ruining <laughs> our question. We've got uh, false dichotomies all over the No, show, man. All right, fine. We've got to do hone it, loan it, or dis... I don't know. Loan it. I'd loan it. <laughs> Who are you going to loan it to? There you go. I'd just... Yeah, if someone else wanted to do it, Karen. would you stand by it enough? Current, all right. I would tell you, yeah, I would definitely, like, if someone else was like, I'm desperate to do this, I'd be like, weird. <laughs> but fine, yeah, go for it if you, you want go. to. Yeah, so you Karen, can, you can have it. No, I did it. I don't give it, no. Binaries. <laughs> all the binaries no alright Sam yes how you doing 
I'm good. Thank you. For, this has been lovely, actually. Good. Oh, I'm glad. That's um, nice. And, and you know what's been the best? What's been the best? The sound. The sound has been sick. Sound has been miraculous. Um, Mr. David Denyer, who is currently sat at our feet in a very sensual position, um, just ready uh, for what we're doing. What's I don't this? Know, I don't this know, who is this guy? This guy? <laughs> who is this guy? I don't know what I'm doing. I just wanted to, I wanted to speak until nice I wanted to speak <laughs> until David got pissed off enough at me that he did something, but uh, he didn't well, work. He's just laughing now. All right. Sam, um, thanks for Sam, coming. thanks for coming. It's a pleasure. Always. Have, thanks for hosting. Well, what were you doing? Nothing. Chatting right. shit. There we go. We're out. We're done. David, we're done. Finish the podcast. De- Our actor this week was Karen Gill. Sound editing, design and engineering by David Denyer. Produced by Pavlos Christodoulou and Daniel Spicer. And executive produced by Jeremy Wong and Dirty Rascals Theatre. <laughs> Da 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 da